A scripture passage that uh, we're going to be looking at today comes from the uh, book of the prophet of Daniel. And uh, Daniel's a unique book because it is both a book of history and a book of prophecy. And we're going to be looking at some of the history that Daniel is going to be talking about. Because that's what we've been discussing through this summer, is uh, the story of how God has built the nation of Israel. And in seeing how we built the nation of Israel, we see how he is still building us today, how he is still forging us and making us into his people, into the children of the living God. Uh, before we read this, though, let us pause for a moment in prayer. Good and heavenly Father, Lord, you have called us as your children. And truly, Lord, that is our identity down from the soles of our feet to the crown of our head down to the very depths of our bones and our souls. Father, as we remember and honor you as our Father, we come before your word today, Lord, and we ask for your illumination and for your blessing. We ask that you would inspire us as you would inspire these words, and as that we read, that we would truly understand in our hearts and our minds and our souls. Father, bless this holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the story that we're looking at today from the book of Daniel is a story that has, quite frankly, always frightened me. It's, it's, this kind of story to me is one of the scariest stories that I read in the Bible or read anywhere. Because this is a story of persecution. It's in fact a story of great persecution. It's a story of three men who are given this fateful decision. It's a fateful decision, and one that will mean their very lives and deaths. They're, they're given a decision, you either worship another God, as in bow down and worship this idol of another God that we have made, or die. I mean, you can't be really faced with a harder decision, or a more consequential decision, can you, than worship an idol or die. I mean, on one hand, you don't want to worship the idol, certainly. You don't want to worship anyone but the one God. We've been commanded to do that. In fact, the first two commands of the Ten Commandments are all about not worshiping other gods. First one is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is, don't make an idol and worship it. Two commandments for that one real law, and that's how important this is. So no one wants to worship an idol, but of course, nobody wants to die either. And you know what scares me? about the story when I think about the scenario, like if, if I were in this scenario as well. What scares me about it is not the death part. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I've realized I'm going to die one way or another. I mean, that's inevitable. It's going to happen. What really scares me is the question of whether or not I would have the courage to do what's right. I mean, I'd want to endure death rather than worship an idol. I turned my back on God. I'd want to do that, but do we really know what we'll do until we're in that situation? Until we're faced with that fear, until we're faced with that pressure? Do we know if we would have the courage to stay faithful to God, or would we crumble under the heat and the pressure to bow to an idol? Now, some of you may be thinking, Rob, I think you're worrying too much, okay? This is America. 
We have freedom of religion here. We don't have any idols, okay? There's no idols sitting around on street corners. There's no one trying to, to pressure people into bowing down to idols and worshiping idols. Okay, you're worried about something that's probably never going to happen. And you do have a point. Right, we don't have any street corners filled with idols here in America. We don't have any tyrant kings trying to force people to worship false gods. But the older I get, and the more experience that I have with life, I've come to realize that's not exactly true. Not only do we actually have idols here in America, but there are subtle ways that we are conformed and pressured to worship them. They're very subtle ways, and we might not notice them at first, but we are pressured here in this country to conform to the culture around us, and sometimes that means even worshiping other gods. Even we here in free America have moments when we are pressured to choose. Will you obey a God that you know and love and believe in, or will you obey an idol? Will you trust into the one God that has given you life and we follow after the ways of a false god. And this isn't just metaphorical pressure, it's real pressure. In fact, the pressure can be so intense sometimes, it's like, it's like being in a furnace. Because we feel that heat. We feel that heat and we want to cave in, we want to conform. But there's a deeper, better part of us that wants to persevere that wants to stay true to our faith and stay true to our God. And if we obey that part of ourselves, then we can emerge from that furnace with a faith that is stronger and with a faith that is pure than it's ever been. Now, I say this pressure to conform is like being in a furnace, and that analogy is no mistake, okay? Because our story today is about three men who were thrown into a furnace because they refused to worship an idol. Or to use one of my kids' favorite words, literally, they were literally thrown into a literal furnace and literally had to face the flames, and it was literally real hot. I mean, they felt the heat, literally. You may recognize the story, maybe heard it when you were younger. It's the story of three great names that once you memorize them are, are, are wonderful names to say to yourself. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Three Israelite men who were living in exile in Babylon. Three Israelite men who were faced with this fateful decision to worship an idol or endure a painful death. Now, if you remember the stories that we've been talking about this summer, you remember that, that we've been talking about how God has found his people and how he was making them over many, many years. How he was forging them in faith. And making him into the men and women that he wanted them to be. True children of God. And, and when he first found the Israelites, they were slaves. Right? They were slaves. They were nothing. They had nothing to offer. They had no power. They had no glory. They had no wealth. They had no riches. But God chose them deliberately. So his might and his power and glory might be manifest in them. And he, and he pulled the slave class up out of the most powerful empire in the world. He delivered them to the Red Sea. And, and for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And that 40 years, God was working. He was, he was working that old slave mentality out of their minds, those old slave feelings out of their hearts until they were free men and women. 
And when they were ready, he led them into Israel to conquer cities and people greater than them. And they were, they were supposed to push everybody out, but they didn't. And so for years, they, they warred and they fought with these other, other groups, the Philistines, right? And the, the other Canaanites that were still left behind. But eventually, the Israelites conquered, and they had this great nation of Israel. They had kings for themselves that were wealthy and powerful. And just, just when they were reaching their peak of power, things started to fall apart. You see, they didn't stay faithful to their God. They didn't obey their God, and they started going after other gods, the Asherahs and the Baals and the Molochs and the Chemoshes. And the kingdom was split in two. It was torn apart by civil war. And you had usurpers rising up. You had enemies chipping away at the borders of their nation. You had uh, the immorality, people falling into just horrible practices, even doing things like child sacrifice. And rebellion started to stir up. Injustice was a rife across the land. The poor were exploited. And finally, God had had enough. And this great nation that he had built was torn apart. The Assyrians came and took a big chunk of it. And then years later, with only a little bit left around Judah and Jerusalem, the Babylonians came and sacked Jerusalem, carried away its treasures. And it took its choice young men and women into exile into Babylon. Now, if you look at this historically, it looks like Israel's finished. They're done, okay? Their capital is sacked, their religion, their, their temple is torn apart, and then all the nobles and leaders are carried off into exile. They're done. They're done. As a culture, as a people, as a civilization, it looks like they're finished. But this isn't just any people. These are the people of God. And they were unfaithful, but God remained faithful. And they were exiled, but they were not forgotten by God. And even this, God was working on them. Even in this worst moment when their civilization collapsed and they were in exile, even then, God was still shaping them. Even then, His Spirit was still working on their hearts. And even then, God was blessing them. He was blessing them incredibly. Now, in, the, in, in that time, it was traditional. If you, if you took over another nation, then you would take the highest-ranking people, the kings, the princes, the nobles, and you would make them servants in your court. And that was a way of showing off your status, saying, I am so great, I am so powerful. My servants are kings and princes and the nobles of other lands. That's, that's how great I am. And that's what happened in Babylon. A king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar took all the nobles and all the royalty of Israel and he made him servants in his court. But see, he didn't count on God's favor. Because as these, these nobles from Israel were serving God's court, God's favor was with them and he blessed them. And they were hard workers and they were successful in everything they did. And Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed that there were four young men in particular by the names of Daniel, also Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And he made them, they made them administrators over the entire empire of Babylon. Now, there were other nobles in Babylon that weren't too happy about this arrangement. Because here you have these foreign Israelites now in a place of tremendous power when they're supposed to be servants and slaves. So these other Babylonian nobles are kind of waiting and biding their time to try to get back at the Israelites, and especially these four men. And finally, one day they get their chance. King Nebuchadnezzar builds an idol. 
He builds this statue to one of his gods. It doesn't say which one. It's probably the god Baal. And he builds this giant golden statue. I mean, it's huge. It's 90 feet tall. He builds this giant statue of a god, and he makes a proclamation. He says, I'm going to start playing music at random times during the day. And when you hear that music, everybody in the palace has to bow down and worship the statue. And if you don't worship him, I'm going to throw you into a furnace alive. There's pretty big stakes there. Throw him into a furnace alive. And now these nobles knew they had their chance because the Israelites were not going to worship the idol. So the next time the music is played, the Israelites don't do what they're supposed to do. So what do you think the nobles do? First chance they get, they run off and they tell Nebuchadnezzar. And this is where we're picking up our scripture story today. Daniel 3, 8 to 28. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. 
The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. These three men were faced with a difficult decision. To worship an idol or stay faithful to God. Worship an idol, okay, and live and prosper, or stay faithful to God and get thrown into a fiery furnace. Of course, they chose to stay faithful to God. And you may think, as I mentioned earlier, that this kind of story doesn't really apply to us. I mean, it's an inspiring story of faith and endurance. But it's doubtful we'll ever be faced with our decision. And it's true, we live in a place of religious toleration. It's true, there's no idols around. But there's more than one way to serve other gods. See, what was really happening in Babylon is these men, these Israelites, were being faced with the pressure to conform to the culture around them. Yes, it was taking the form of religion, but this was more about conforming to the culture than worshiping. I mean, the Babylonians truly didn't care, have any deep devotion to their God. The reason why they worshiped the God they did is because that was the God of Babylon. And it was much a social and cultural construct as it was a religious one, perhaps even more. See, in those days, it was common that every city and every locality and province had their own gods. And when you walked and went to another place, you didn't take your gods with you. You worshipped at whatever god was around you. In those kind of days, Columbia would have their own god. And if you lived in Columbia, you'd worship the god of Columbia. But if you went to Charleston, even for a brief visit, while you were in Charleston, you would worship the god in Charleston. If you went up to Greenville, you would worship the God of Greenville. And when you came back to Columbia, you would worship again the God of Columbia. That's the way they did things. And if you lived in a place, you were certainly expected to worship that God because that was the God that looked after that city. That was the God that protected that city. That was the God that made the culture and the society what it was. And if you came in and you brought in another God, then you were messing things up. You were bringing in new ideas. You were bringing in a new spirit. You were changing the whole culture of the place. You were threatening their way of life. You were threatening how they did things. You were threatening their empire. You were threatening their families. And so when you have these pesky Jews coming in here refusing to worship the local God, they weren't just refusing to worship a foreign God. They were bucking the whole system. They were threatening their entire culture and their way of life. They were refusing to conform to the group at large. Now, I'm pretty sure none of us has ever been threatened or commanded to worship an idol. Pretty sure that's never happened. But I'm 100% certain that all of us have felt pressure to conform to the culture around us. This culture can take a lot of forms. It can be friend groups. It can be work groups. It could be state groups. It could be larger social groups. 
In, in any group you become a part of, there is intense pressure to act like one of us and to look like one of us. And some of this pressure can be quite innocent. You know, you just, we all dress the same way. If you notice groups of friends and people, they, they tend to start to dress the same way. They have like inside jokes that only they understand and no one else knows about. And they tend to like the same kind of movies and, and read the same kind of books and listen to the same kind of music. That just happens with groups. And there's a lot of pressure to conform and be a part of it. But some of that pressure can be a lot more sinister. Sometimes that pressure can be a pressure to compromise your values for the sake of the group, even compromising your Christian values for the sake of the group. It might be a pressure that we're going to decide to hate this outsider. We don't like him. We don't like what he does. And we're going to be against him and make fun of him and talk bad about him and in some ways even try to undermine him and ruin his life. And it might be a person. It might be a people group. It might be a race. It might be a different ideology. But we've decided they're the outsiders and this group has decided we don't like them. And if you're going to be one of us, you can't like them either. That pressure can come in the form of accepting an idea that you know to be patently ridiculous. But you just have to nod, nope, nope, just nod your head. Nope, nod your head and go along with it. Because you've got to be one of us. The pressure from the group can go as far as asking you or demanding that you do something that you know is wrong. It's funny how groups can work. And they can be things that give us great life, but they can turn on you in a minute. And there seems to always be one in a group, always one in a group that's going to demand that you act just like them. It's always going to be that one that may even go so far as to tell you to compromise your Christian values for the sake of the group. And there's moments we can feel an intense heat, a pressure to conform even when our conscience says no. And feel that heat to compromise what it is that we believe, to sacrifice it for the idol of our groups. You see, these Jews, when they were in exile, had this intense pressure to conform. And there was a huge reward if they did. There was a great punishment if they didn't. They were put in a furnace. Sometimes literally put in a furnace. But these became important moments in shaping who they were. You see, when you build a furnace, you put metals in there in order to refine them. That's what a furnace is for. You refine the metals. And that means when the metals come out of the furnace, they're either stronger or they're more pure than they were when they went in. And those Israelites who refused to conform, many were punished. But many more walked out of the forge. They were pressured to conform to a wicked culture. And in that pressure, their faith was refined. And that means when the Israelites were finally freed and when they walked out of Babylon, when they left that place, place their faith was stronger and their faith was purer than it was when they were dragged into exile 70 years earlier. When we're tempted by our culture, when we're tempted to compromise our values in Christ Jesus for the sake of our culture, those are moments that we too are also been put in a furnace. 
Those moments when we're told to just nod and go along with something that doesn't make any sense. Those times when we're told to keep silent, when we know we should speak. There's times when we know, when we're told to believe and even promote something that you know is ungodly. And as America grows less Christian, these moments will become more frequent and that pressure will conform, will become more intense and that furnace is going to get hotter. And I'm just talking about if we continue that the road we're on already. And if we continue on this road as a culture and as our nation, we will become less Christian. And by becoming less Christian, we will become less tolerant. And I'm not being a prophet here. I'm just looking trajectory. I'm just looking at the direction that we are already facing and already moving. If we continue to move this way, we will become less Christian and we will become less tolerant. And for those who have outside Christian values, the pressure to form conform is going to be greater and the consequences of us not conforming are going to become more dire. And we're not going to always do the right thing. I mean, we don't, do we? We don't always do what we're supposed to do. We don't always stay faithful when we're supposed to. Sometimes we will buckle. Sometimes we will give in to the heat. And we'll conform when we know we're not supposed to. But friends, these can be holy times as well. These can be holy times and important times in our life. Because those are the moments when we go back to ourselves and we look in the mirror and we're ashamed at the face that looks back at us. And we vow never to let it happen again. And every time we resist that pressure to compromise, every time we stand up to that heat, our faith gets reformed, gets refined, just a little bit stronger, just a little bit purer with every opportunity. Now, I wish I could stand up here and say that If you resist the pressure to conform, the same thing that happened to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego will happen to you. God will save you from punishment. He will preserve you, and you will be plucked out of the furnace completely unscathed. I can't tell you that, because that's not always the case. Not all the Israelites who resisted in Babylon were saved from the furnace. Some gave their lives. Sometimes we suffer in that fire. Sometimes we suffer for choosing God. But then again, at the same time, every time we choose God and are faithful to our God, we are persevered, we are preserved, and we are saved. I know, maybe we lose our property. Maybe we get passed over for a raise or promotion. Maybe we lose our status with our friend group. Maybe sometimes we even lose our life. But when we stay faithful to God, something more important than life is preserved. I'm talking about your integrity. I'm talking about your honor. Now, I know, I know that's not a real popular word these days. In fact, honor is not a word we use much in our culture anymore. And in fact, I think that's one of our greatest weaknesses. So we've all forgotten how important honor is really is. I think Shakespeare said it best. My honor 
is my life. When we maintain our integrity, when we hold fast to our honor and do what is honorable, something greater than biological life is preserved and something better and greater than this physical life is saved. It's your very soul, your identity in Christ Jesus. This is what steps out of the fire, unscathed and untouched and stronger for the flames. More importantly, your soul is the only thing you get to carry with you into eternity. Your soul is what's going to stand one day before the judgment seat of God. Your soul is what defines who you are as a person, as a believer in God. And what we find is those moments when we have to face these decisions. Those moments when we're forced to choose between the way of God or the idols of our culture. These are the moments that define us. These are the moments that strengthen us. These are the moments that purify our souls. My friends, these are the moments that forge us into the children of God. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.